One of my favorite bands of all time is this band from New Jersey called the Gaslight Anthem. Um, they're on hiatus presently, uh, indefinite hiatus, which sounds like a breakup, but I guess we'll see in five years. Most bands that break up don't stay broken up anymore. Nothing is sacred. Um, but before they went on this indefinite hiatus, uh, as they were getting ready to release their most recent record, the singer did a couple interviews where he basically explained that he'd come to this emotional crisis in trying to write the, uh, the follow-up to one of their, their bigger releases, in large part because as he would try to write, he just couldn't force anything out that sounded like that band. And, and he went through this turmoil of wondering if his time in this band was over and if it was time for him to start something new because his tastes had so changed and his writing style was so different. And finally, he forced his way through. Uh, they finished recording the record, and yet he came to this next crisis point when he realized that the record sounded nothing like anything else that they'd put out, and everybody who liked them for how they sounded would probably hate them in their new sound. And so in this sort of crisis moment, he went back to all his favorite bands. So he went back to The Clash, uh, to Joe Strummer. He went back to Hot Water Music and sort of the melodic punk rock bands of the early 90s. And he listened to their discographies, and he noticed that they had all gone through the same journey that his band was now going through. And that was really the experience that gave him the confidence to walk through it himself and to release this record that was in so many ways different from anything that he had done before. And sometimes it seems like in the midst of our darkness, what we most need is to see somebody walk the road before us so that we ourselves can place the first foot towards it and begin to walk it in confidence. We need to see faithfulness modeled so that we know that there's hope for us in the midst of our darkness. In the fall of 2016, roughly, we began this series in 2 Corinthians. And last I counted, we were about 20 weeks into it. And then we took a break for the spring. Second Corinthians is this portion of Scripture that you can probably quote a few parts of. Uh, there's some highly quotable, tweetable things in this text. Uh, and yet, it's exceedingly rare for churches or ministries or, or really anything within the Christian world to just systematically work through Second Corinthians. And yet, I think we do that to our own peril. We do that to our own harm because Second Corinthians finds this great hero of the faith, the Apostle Paul, in the midst of his absolute darkest. It finds him at his lowest point in the face of a profound rejection and utter misery and really in circumstances that would cause any reasonable person to despair. And yet Paul, in the midst of his darkness, refuses to despair, but instead he lays hold of the steadfast faithfulness of God and he models for us what it looks like to walk through difficulty in a manner that's faithful to the gospel. But 2 Corinthians is a letter like all the other letters in the New Testament. And like any letter, there's background information. And really, the riches of 2 Corinthians only begin to unfold themselves when you know what's going on in this world in which it was written. Uh, the reality is that for like the first eight weeks of this series, I just repeated the background of 2 Corinthians over and over and over again until I think everybody was comfortable sleeping for the first 10 minutes of every sermon. Uh, but it's been six months now. I would venture to say you've forgotten, but also I know that there's tons of people in this room right now that weren't with us when we began 2 Corinthians. And so it's worthwhile just to, to get a little bit of a sense of the context in which this letter exists and in which the Holy Spirit saw fit to inspire it before we jump back into it for the next like 400 weeks. So, uh, Corinth is a bustling city in the ancient Near East. 
Uh, it is a relatively new city in the like 100 BC. It was destroyed by Rome. And so it's been rebuilt, but it doesn't really have any deep-rooted traditions. Because it's relatively new by ancient standards, people are just sort of establishing their own customs. You'll sort of notice this when you go to any American city by comparison to anywhere in Europe. Like all European cities have like 700 years on us. Whereas everything in America is just kind of like prefab, plexiglass. It's gonna, I mean, it's, we don't have deep-rooted traditions because we're new, right, historically speaking. Corinth is sort of like that. Actually, some of the commentaries liken it to an ancient Los Angeles uh, where there's all of these sort of cultural hot spots and these, these people who are uh, classy and sophisticated and sort of climbing the corporate ladder. Wealth is kind of the key controlling factor in what makes you special in Corinth is that you have lots of money and that you're culturally sensitive. Uh, but most of the ways that you're going to climb the corporate ladder in Corinth are tied specifically to idolatry. Uh, so if you want to buy meat in Corinth, it's all been sacrificed to idols, and so you have to wrestle with whether that's okay. Uh, if you want to go to dinner with your pagan friends, they're going to offer the food up to the pagan gods, and you have to figure out if you can eat it afterwards. If you want to go to the hospital, the hospital has been blessed by these pagan deities of health and wealth. If you want to teach in a school, you have to teach the creation narrative of the Roman gods. And so to convert to Christianity in this culture is to automatically introduce some sort of distance from you and everybody else around you. Because there's just things that you can't do by virtue of who you confess as Lord. But it's into this setting that the Apostle Paul chooses to plant a church. Uh, the planting of the church in Corinth is documented in the book of Acts. I believe it's chapter 18 or 20. Happens around 50 AD, and almost immediately the church just sort of goes haywire. Uh, Paul sends this letter to them, just kind of, it's like a beginner's manual, we can assume. Hey, so you're a new Christians, you're a new church, here's some things that you should do as you enter into this new way of living. And from what we can tell, they completely misunderstand it, and they think what Paul wants them to do is just cut themselves off from the outside world and maybe start their own bookstores and have their own radio stations. And they just segregate themselves from everyone and everything. Well, this letter that Paul wrote has been lost to history, but Paul hears what's going on, and he writes a follow-up letter. And that, in your Bible, is the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, when Paul writes this follow-up letter, it's, it's almost him just telling him, like, chill out a little bit, pump the brakes. You seem really excited. That's good, but you're really excited in the wrong direction. And so it almost as if he is saying to them in 2 Corinthians, hey, listen, I know, I know you're struggling to figure out how to live this Christian life, so do this. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul says almost exactly that. The Corinthians don't like that a whole lot. And here's why. Because they're living in this Los Angeles-type society where might makes right, where wealth makes you well-known. And Paul is poor and borderline homeless and has been imprisoned and tortured and stoned and shipwrecked and continually gets dragged before authorities. And so they hear Paul say, imitate me, and they say, nah, we're good. Actually, rather than imitating you and following you and this gospel that seems as though it leads to suffering, we would rather find new apostles, and we'll just pick the richest people we can find who are the most impressive, and then we can imitate them, because that means our lives will go well. And so they reject Paul. Paul hears word of this. He sends Timothy. Timothy comes back and says, it's really bad in Corinth. So Paul goes in person, and when he gets there in some setting, we don't know all the details, but somehow the Corinthian church publicly rejects him. 
Uh, whether it's in a worship service, if they stand up and condemn him, or if they don't even let him into the worship service, something happens where they publicly say, you're not our apostle, we're not listening to you, we found someone new, we want nothing to do with you, and they sort of just push him out. And so Paul leaves Corinth dejected and having been rejected by the very church that he planted because they found people who were more interesting and more successful. And so Paul writes a third letter to the Corinthians which also has been lost to the sands of time, but he references it in 2 Corinthians, and he calls it his tearful letter. I would venture to say that he's writing in all caps, which all Greek is in all caps in Koine Greek, so I guess all of them are in all caps. Um, But he's he's angry. He's he's sort of just like shaking them from like a textual uh, perspective, and he's just saying, what's wrong with you? You have to repent. You're going to derail this entire church. Uh, You're turning away from the gospel. And so he sends them this harsh letter. It's the angry email that maybe you've gotten at work, except when you know that the angry email's right because you've been an idiot. And somehow, by, by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, a good portion of the Corinthians say, you're right, we were wrong. And they turn back to Paul. And yet there's this sort of lingering tension, this lingering awkwardness that sort of happens when you've reconciled with somebody, but there's still some soreness between the two of you. And so with that as the background, Paul writes what in your Bible is 2 Corinthians, but is in fact his fourth letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, To put to rest any of the questions that might linger, any of the criticisms that are keeping them from hearing the gospel that has been proclaimed through the apostolic witness. Some of the the Corinthian criticisms, I think, are, are interesting to consider because truth be told, They're the sort of things that in different language American Christians would levy today. You know, very often, especially in evangelicalism, we make this big deal about being biblical. Uh, And yet, the trajectories that you find in modern American Christianity lead me to think that we would be more Corinthian than apostolic. They lead me to think that we too would reject Paul and we would find all of these reasons to be persuasive uh, rather than hearing the truth. So some of the reasons why the Corinthians don't want anything to do with Paul One of them is that they say he writes impressive letters. He's eloquent, he's verbose, he's well-written, if you will, but he's boring in person. Maybe he's short, maybe he's a little bit overweight, maybe he's balding, he stumbles over his words, he's not engaging, he doesn't tell funny stories. And so when they finally meet Paul in person, or when they meet Paul in person for the first time, they say, well, you're nothing like the letters. We would rather just have somebody who's actually entertaining and interesting. interesting to consider that. I was, uh, I had this Sunday off, and so I went to a different church, one that I'd grown up in. Um, it's a little bit more formal than Bay Life, uh, and so the sermons are only 15 minutes, and they're called homilies, not sermons. And uh, the minister who spoke was preaching on the ascension of Christ in the book of Acts, and it was about 15 minutes long, and it was unbelievably boring. It was monotone. He was obviously reading from his notes, There were no funny stories. There were no pop culture references. The closest thing he got was D-Day, which was a long time ago. (laughs) He didn't have any cool, like, sermon props. Like, he didn't come out with hula hoops. It wouldn't have worked because there was vestments and all this stuff going on. And I sat there, and I listened to it, and in spite of all of those things, he was faithful to what the Bible said and what the gospel is. And I was just struck sitting there in this pew, because it's pews and not chairs there. Um, 
struck by the fact that in most American churches, he would quickly be jettisoned because he was a boring speaker, even if he was preaching truth, and he would be replaced by somebody in skinny jeans with craft beer who was entertaining but was speaking heresy. Because the reality is that that is the disposition, the Corinthian longing that exists in all of us is that we would rather have entertaining error rather than boring truth. This is one of the reasons why Paul is rejected in Corinth. Another reason why he's rejected is because he suffers too much. The the logic of the Corinthians is you say that God called you to this, and if God called you to this, surely it should go well for you, but it's not going well for you, so clearly God didn't call you to this. Yet how often is that the internal logic of our own lives? God's clearly called us to something, but he closed the door because it's not going as easily as I thought it would. And I'm sure that's the exact logic that Jonah had when God called him to Nineveh, and lo and behold, there was a ship going to Tarshish, and he said, God must be closing the door. Their argument is you suffer too much to truly be called by God because God wouldn't let you suffer if this is what he called you to. Without recognizing that the very name that they bear, the name of Jesus, this man that we follow is called the man of sorrows, that he's acquainted with grief, that we should expect nothing less from people who are marked by the cross than that there would be suffering in their life and yet there would be hope in the midst of it. Is this not the great inclination of our own hearts that we seek spiritual leaders who believe nothing, who risk nothing, who call us to nothing so that our comfortable, anemic Christianity can continue on and we can tacitly cover it with a veneer of spirituality? And so you suffer too much. And this is the last of the criticisms which has bearing on our text for today. They, they basically say, Paul, you can't be trusted. Uh, and this is what sort of creeps in through the people who take Paul's place. Because when Paul originally plants this church, and when he first preaches the gospel in Corinth, and when he visits them, he doesn't take money for it. Like, he refuses to, to receive payment for what he's doing. And the argument that's sort of being levied against Paul is the reason he's doing that is so he can ask you for something really big later. He's sort of storing up favors. And so you really shouldn't trust him. And maybe you've got the friend who's always buying you lunch or are always there for you when you have problems. But you know that one day, all of those favors are not going to be free. They've stored them up so they can ask you for something. And maybe your friend is sitting next to you, and I'm sorry, you should talk before communion. Um, but this is, this is the criticism levied at Paul, that he's not trustworthy. Why, why would you trust him? Why wouldn't he take your money? That's weird. That's sketchy. And so Paul writes 2 Corinthians with all of these criticisms weighing on him, eager to make sure that he can address these well so that they can begin to walk in confidence and begin to return to walking in the gospel. Which brings us to our passage today, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 16 to 24. We know from uh, previous portions in Corinthians that there came some point early on in this church's history and in the history of the church where there was a famine that broke out in the city of Jerusalem and it specifically affected the Jerusalem church uh, particularly badly. And so the local churches in the area began to take up collections that were going to be carried to Jerusalem. But what seems to have happened when Corinth kicked Paul out is that they stopped caring about the Jerusalem church. They stopped caring about the suffering of Christians elsewhere. And so Paul is writing this letter saying, all right, we're back on good terms. You need to start caring about other people again. And so he uh, is really beginning to explain to them, hey, I'm about to send people to you to take up this collection 
for this church that you cared about before you went all crazy, but now you're back, you're back on, your, on your grind or whatever. You need to care for this church. And so we come to our text. Let me read it for us. It says this, But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he was going to you, uh, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. Not only that, he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner, a fellow worker for your benefit. As for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. So earlier this week, I was talking with Corey, I think it was Tuesday, and we normally just talk about service, and he looks at the passage because we've got it scheduled a couple months in advance and asks me what I'm going to say about it uh, so he can sort of plan service. And on Tuesday, I said, I'm going to be honest, Corey, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to say. Could you read it and just tell me what you think? And Corey read it, and like 20 minutes later, he came into the break room where I was, and he just said, like, good luck, man. I don't know. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is one of those passages where the first time you read it, you go, this is housekeeping. Uh, yes, this happened. Yes, it's in here for a reason, probably just to tell us what happened. I don't really know what else there is to say about it. Uh, And yet, I think if we give careful attention to the internal logic of what's going on in this passage, there is something weighty here that ought to convict us when we consider it. So Paul is letting the Corinthians know that he is sending three people to take up this collection that's going to go to the church in Jerusalem that's suffering. The first of them is Titus, who has this earnest care for the Corinthians, and he's earnest to go to this church. Now, you may be familiar with Titus because he gets a whole other book dedicated to him in the New Testament. But then there's these two other people who are mentioned. One of them is mentioned in verse 18. He's just called the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching in the gospel. People have speculated as to who it is. Some have said it's Apollos. Some have said it might be Luke. The truth is we have no idea. There's no point in speculating. But he's famous. Apparently, he's a good preacher. He probably uses lots of funny jokes and illustrations. And then there's another man who's mentioned at the end. They're sending our brother with whom we have, uh, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. So these three men are going to the church to take up this collection for Jerusalem. But pay attention in verse 19 as to how Paul describes this collection. He says, not only that, but he being one of the men he's sending... He has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. So this taking up of money for the church in Jerusalem is described both as an act of grace and something that is happening for the glory of the Lord himself. How is it that this one act serves so significant and weighty a purpose? 
So the natural inclination is to say, well, whenever we care for the poor, that glorifies God. It's, it's an act of grace as we give of the abundance of what we have for people who have less. Absolutely true. And yet there's probably more at work here that's taking place, and it's rooted in who is receiving the gift and who is giving this financial gift. Because the impoverished church that is suffering is the church in Jerusalem that is predominantly full of Jewish people. And the surrounding churches that are giving are predominantly Gentile churches. Now, that may not seem like a big deal until you put yourself in the mentality of Judaism in like 100 to 1, or not 100, but 0 to 50 AD. Because for Jewish people in this culture, Gentiles are dogs. They're less than dogs. They're scum. They're not deserving of the grace of God, and they would certainly never receive help from a Gentile. This is part of why the Good Samaritan is such a challenging parable for the people who hear it. And for Gentiles in the wider world, Jewish people are just crazy. They're like this weird little sect that hangs out in the armpit of the Roman Empire. These are two ethnic groups who are in active hostility against one another, and yet through the gospel of Jesus Christ, these groups that were in animosity have been reconciled so that they don't see each other as enemies or as strangers, but they see each other as brothers and sisters so that one of them suffers, and when one of them suffers, it affects all of them. And when one of them has abundance, they give to help the one who is suffering rather than looking down on them as petty and insignificant. The fact that Gentiles are giving to care for a people group that before they knew Jesus, they would have considered worthless is a testimony to what Jesus accomplished on the cross by uniting people from across ethnic boundaries. And maybe, maybe you've been in the church your whole life, and I wonder if you are like me in that sense if you haven't grown callous to this earth-shattering reality. You know, I was talking to my friend Frank a couple weeks ago and we were just considering this. The fact is that in this room tonight, most of the people here would probably not naturally be friends with each other. You're too culturally different. You're too interested in different things. Your jobs don't intersect. You come from different racial and socioeconomic backgrounds. And yet here we are together from every tribe and tongue and nation gathered around the table of the Lord and united by the same gospel. Caring for one another, bearing one another's burdens. It's a testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ in his very body on the cross has torn down the walls that separated humanity and has united a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. So when Paul says that we're taking up this money to the glory of God, yes, it's about caring for the poor, but it's more than that. It's about caring for people who were once enemies, once hostile. This is to the glory of God the glory of the Lord himself. And yet, if we really think about Paul's uh, process here, it is just profoundly ineffective. Like, it's just not good resource management. Because the reality is that the Corinthian church is probably the same number of people as are in this room. It might be smaller than that. They probably have about as much money as the people in this room pulled together and combined. Unless you're super rich and then you should I don't know, steward your money well. Um, so it's not as though Timothy needs extra help to wheelbarrow all this Corinthian gold over to Jerusalem. It's not as though he needs extra hands to help him carry it all. It's not as though Paul couldn't even go himself and do it. So why is it that Paul sends these three people to do something that really just takes one person? 
Well, if you look in verses 21, or I'm sorry, 20 and 21, you see sort of the internal logic here. He says, we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. You see, Paul's concern here is that the way that he conducts this collection the way that he deals with these people's finances should be above reproach, not just in the eyes of God, but in the eyes of other people. He doesn't want to allow any room for his integrity to be questioned, even if he knows in his heart that he's not doing anything wrong. So he sort of rejects this Tupac theology of only God can judge me. And he instead recognizes that he has to conduct himself in such a way that he's above reproach, not just in the eyes of God, but in the people that he's serving and ministering alongside. A couple of years ago, I had a friend uh, who I'd grown up with in the church, and he had some interest in going into ministry. I don't know where he's at with that now. Uh, but he started going down this track of like, heavy, heavy substance use. And um, I sat down with him and just kind of explained to him, like, listen, man, I, I really think you're, you're letting this sort of sin into your life that could be really destructive. And we argued for probably 45 minutes about whether or not what he was doing was actually sinful. And there was just no convincing him. And so, so I sort of stepped back and I said, okay, so even if we can't agree on that, you should know, I'll call him Steve. Uh, Steve, you know that people know you now as like Steve the addict and not Steve the Christian. And, and whether or not you think what you're doing is wrong, because I can't convince you, the fact is that your testimony to the gospel has been compromised by what you're doing. And you may say that your conscience is clear before God, but people don't listen to you anymore about what you say about God because of what you do with your life. And his response was, I don't care, only God can judge me. Tupac theology, right? I love Pac, this is no disrespect. And that's easy enough for, for you and I to say this, though. When we're confronted with things that aren't sin issues, it sounds wonderfully spiritual, as though you only care about this audience of one. You only care about what God thinks about you. And yet, I would ask you, do you care enough about what other people think about the Lord based on the way that you're operating in the world to operate differently? Not for your comfort, but for the sake of the gospel. Because Paul could have easily taken the money himself and said, my conscience is clear, I'm not doing anything wrong. And yet, he says, we do this so that we will be seen as without fault in the eyes of God and man. Now, there's, there's some people in here, and I would probably count myself among them, who are crippled by other people's perception of them. There's probably good things you have chosen not to do because you're afraid of what people think of you. And so, you, you should hear me if you're in that sort of place. I'm not advocating that you be this sort of paranoid person who is just debilitatingly afraid of what everybody thinks about you and is always taking into, into your opinion matrix everybody else's opinions. And Paul is not this sort of person either. I mean, he makes it clear throughout the rest of this letter and all of his letters that his first allegiance is to God, and when that conflicts with man's opinion, he has no problem making a few people more than angry about it. And yet, he recognizes that he can't just throw this only God can judge me flack. Because as somebody who represents the gospel, Paul is interested in operating in the world with this uncommon sort of integrity. The sort that might require him to be less productive, like sending three people to take like a bags full of money. It requires him to be less productive perhaps, but infinitely more faithful. And to set up guardrails against his own sinful tendencies. 
So I'm not, I'm not calling you in this to take from Paul this, uh, this command that you should be paranoid and looking over your shoulder, afraid of what other people think of you. And yet I am saying that Christians who fail to walk with integrity and faithfulness heap scorn on the gospel. They do violence to the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was in Scotland last November uh, with the people that we prayed for earlier this evening, and one of the things that they asked that we do was take this survey out into the community. It was the survey they'd done with their community center, which is kind of like the Scottish YMCA, um, and, and then the church that we partnered with. And so it was all these questions about their needs uh, as people in the community. Do you need help with food bank, job search? And then at the end, there was some questions sort of diagnosing their spiritual health. And one of the first houses that my group came to was this younger couple. And we got to the last few questions, and I asked them if they were of any particular religious persuasion. And the wife said, no, I don't, I don't believe in anything. But she just looked like one of those spiritual but not religious people. And there's a look, I'm just saying. And I said, but are you spiritual? And she said, oh, of course. I said, I knew it. Um, and... Uh, and the husband, he said, no, I'm, I'm an atheist. And just based on the way he responded, this is just one of my more perceptive moments in life. I don't often have these. But based on the way that he responded, I just felt like there was more there. And I said, okay, well, so what led you down that path? And he said, well, you know, uh, I was hanging out with some, some Catholic mates for a while because they say mates over there because they're British and have fun accents. Uh, and one of them stabbed me. So no, nah, this is not for me. So my first thought was, well, dang, that sucks. Like, my second thought was, can I see the scar? Um, my third thought was, well, I don't know. I don't know what to think with that. But, but as I sort of walked away from this conversation, what really settled in for me after that was frustration. Because the faithfulness of these Christians had hardened this man to the idea of a faithful God the lack of fidelity and integrity in these Christians' lives had turned him against the idea that such a God who has integrity and fidelity could possibly exist. And so here's, here's my just recognition. I know that's an extreme example and none of you are stabbing people or leaving your friends for dead or anything like that. I, I certainly hope not. Um, but this temptation to, to walk in a way that lacks integrity, it exists in every facet of our lives. In your romantic relationships, in your friendships, in your job, in your occupation, in your education, in your familial interactions, there is this temptation to walk in such a way that is faithless, that doesn't have integrity, that doesn't take into account your sinfulness and your tendency to break the law of God because you're in Adam or at least you were in Adam. So, hear my appeal here. Paul gives this reason, that he should walk uh, in a way that is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Can I just appeal to the Christians in this room as the people of a faithful God, that you must also be a people who are faithful in your relationships, in your finances, in your occupation. Would you also, like Paul, aim to walk in an honorable way in the sight of God, but also in the sight of man, so that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven?